Before we get into the actual class today, I do want to do a little housekeeping. Uh, last week we talked about classifications of attributes at the end of the class, but I didn't give you the order that we're going to go in in this class. Um, I spent a couple weeks going straight up nerd on this, trying to figure out how I'm going to organize the attributes. I even did what nerds do, and I made a spreadsheet so I could try to figure it out. Um, and I realized that some of them are really complicated outlines. Some of them are simple outlines, and some of them are too simple. But fortunately, one of them was not only complete, but it was simple, and that's the outline out of biblical doctrine, which works out well for, for us because many of you already have the book Biblical Doctrine. So if you want to know the order that we're going to go in, through this class, just open up Biblical Doctrine, look at the table of contents, and you've got the order of the class. And you can follow along with us in that book. If you do not have Biblical Doctrine, it is a wonderful systematic theology and is a great starting point to learning about the attributes of God. So here's the order we're going to go in. Again, we're, we're dividing this up, incommunicable and communicable attributes. Incommunicable attributes are those attributes that do not pass on, does not communicate to Believers or his creatures and communicable are passed on, although not fully. For incommunicable, this is the order that we're going to go through. Aseity, immutability, infinity, eternity, immensity, and omnipresence, unity, omniscience, omnipotence, and perfection. And then for the communicable attributes, we'll do it in that order. Now, I said it's in that order. That doesn't necessarily mean that each number is a Sunday. Some of these are going to be combined into one. Some of them may be divided up in over two Sundays, depending on how much material we have to go through. All right? Any questions? No. Good. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Yes, the slides are online. Um, all the slides every week will be put online. So if you're a note taker, don't worry about trying to scribble everything that's on the screen because it's going to be on the slides and the slides are going to be made available to you. Okay? <laughs> Save your hand. Save your hand. Okay, let's get started. We're doing the attributes of God. Um, today we're going to be looking at the names of God. You'll see how that applies in a minute. Aseity and sufficiency. And aseity and sufficiency, they're technically the same thing. One is the consequence of the other. All right, let's start with uh, this, the names of God. Last week we talked about God, and we said that God was incomprehensible. That God's nature, if we try to just define God's nature without his attributes, it's impossible to do. And in order for us to understand who God is and what God is, God has to condescend and come down to our level and talk to us with baby talk. Because our finite minds just do not understand. And he does that by giving us attributes. And the attributes are put in a way that we can understand, and they're put at our level so we can get to them. That's the first way that he condescends. The second way he condescends in describing those attributes is his names, or are his names. In the ancient world, the name revealed the nature of a person. It described who that person was. The name encompassed everything there was about that person. The name symbolized everything that person did, everything they were. And if you wanted to know about someone, you would ask them their name. And God has revealed his nature to us. He's revealed his nature through his attributes. And he has revealed his attributes partly through the names that he has given for himself. And he has not just given us one name. 
We can't say, like, you know, I only have one name. My name is Frank. God has many names. Scriptures actually record multiple names of God. And these names tell us parts of his nature, aspects of his nature, and it tells us about what he does, how he behaves, what he loves. And his name is so attached to his nature, it's so connected to who and what he is, that his name has value. His name is meaningful. To misuse or to abuse God's name is to abuse God himself. That's how closely connected his name is with his nature. Malachi 1 verse 6, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, this is God speaking, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. If you want to see the value of God's name, you can go to Exodus chapter 3. Moses goes up on the mountain. He's talking to God. And God commissions him, commissions him to go back to Egypt and to bring out the people of Israel. Here's what he said. He said, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel. And I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. But Moses has a question. He, he anticipates what the people are going to want from him. He anticipates that the people are going to have a question. He's going to go to them and say, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they're going to respond, what's his name? We're not going to follow a God we cannot know by a name. Tell us who this God is. The name had high importance. The value of the name is indicated in Ezekiel 39 where God promises that he's going to be jealous for his name and the restoration of Israel. Israel has been experiencing God's judgment, and now God is going to restore Israel, and he's going to do it for one reason, for his own name. Ezekiel 39, 25, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. The names of God are not something that we have come up with. They're not human inventions. We did not develop these names. These are names given to us by God, but they are borrowed from human language. When God decided to condescend to our level, he gave us names that come from our language that relate to how we live here on earth so that we could understand them, so that we could comprehend them. They are, in a sense, anthropomorphic. That is to say that they take God and they compare him and make him understandable to man. It is God condescending to us, condescending to our level. Louis Burkhoff said this, and in order to make himself known to man, God had to condescend to the level of a man to accommodate himself to the limited and finite consciousness and to speak in human language. This is God descending and giving us baby talk. Louis Burkhoff, the names of God constitute a difficulty for human thought. God is the incomprehensible one, infinitely exalted above all that is temporal, but in his names he, he descends to all that is finite and becomes like unto man. On the one hand, we cannot name him. On the other hand, he has many names. Somehow God, the infinite, incomprehensible God, explains himself in such finite, simple terms. 
So let's look at a couple of them. We're not going to be able to look at all of his names because there's too many of them. We're just going to pick out a few. Let's do El and Elohim. For the nerds in the room, there's El and there's Elohim. Uh, These are the same words. They're just in different forms. One is the plural of the other. In the New Testament, you'd find these translated as theos. just means God. Both of these refer to God. El is God. Elohim is God's. Theos is the same thing. But these two terms are not exclusively used for the one true God. Psalm 95, verse 3, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. That gods there is the term Elohim. So Elohim can be used for false gods. It's also used for man, Exodus 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as a god, Elohim, to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. It's also used for rulers, Exodus 22, 8. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges. Judges there is the term Elohim. It describes a ruler. These two terms are derived from another term that means to be smitten with fear. And they depict God as the the strong and the almighty one. The God who has all power, who has consummate power. He's the possessor and the giver of life. uh, The one who is to be feared. He is the transcendent God who is separate from his creation. Genesis 1, in the beginning God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Joshua 3.10, by this you will know that the living God, El, is among you, and that he will surely dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite. God is depicted as having immense power and being above and beyond everything else. Now, there are some who have said Elohim, because it's plural and it's referring to a singular being, that this is evidence and proof of the Trinity in the Old Testament. I wouldn't go that far, but it is a plural, and it does refer to a being, a single being, so it is consistent with what comes later in revealing the Trinity. But it's not enough to say, well, Elohim, that proves the Trinity. I wouldn't go that far. All right, that's El and Elohim. God is transcendent, God is above, and he is all-powerful. Then there's another term, Adonai. The root means to judge or to rule. And again, this doesn't always refer to God himself. It can be used to refer to a person who is superior. Uh, Genesis 32.5 I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. This is Jacob speaking to Esau, his brother. This is a term of respect, and he's just saying, you are my Lord. He's viewing Esau as his superior. It's also used of a master speaking about a slave. This happens in Exodus 21. In Exodus 21, he's giving the rules for slaves in Israel. And the master here is the word translated is Adonai. It's speaking of the master as being the superior to the slave. It's also used speaking of a prophet. Obadiah calls Elijah my master, my Adonai. 
when used of God, it points to God as the almighty ruler. That everything and everyone is subject to God. That God is superior to everyone else. When you say God is Adonai, you are saying he is the master, the Lord. That he is the ruler. Psalm 114, verse 7. Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob. You are to give honor and respect to one that is your superior. Isaiah 10, verse 16. Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among the stout warriors, and under his glory a fire will be kindled like a burning flame. Again, the idea there is just that he is the master, he's above all of them. So that's Adonai. Last name we're going to look at. Very popular one. It's the name Yahweh. You might recognize that that is what's called the Tetragrammaton. It shows up with just four consonants and no vowels. It is the most commonly used name of God in the Old Testament. In fact, it's used 6,800 times. When it's translated in the New Testament, it's translated as kurios. Again, another word that we just translate as Lord. And it speaks of God's unchanging nature. And it speaks of God primarily in the context of his relationship to his own people. When we talked about Elohim, Elohim was God, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. El, Elohim, Adonai, all picture God kind of at a distance, far and above, lofty. Yahweh first appears in Genesis chapter 2. Yahweh is the God who is imminent. Yahweh is the God that is close. He is, the, he is the God who scooped up clay and formed a man. There is intimacy here. It was Yahweh who made a covenant with Noah in Genesis 8. It was Yahweh in Genesis 12 who made a covenant with Abraham. It was Yahweh who rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. And when Joseph, near the end of Genesis was said of Joseph he, that God is with him. It was Yahweh that was with him. It was Yahweh that made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. And in Jeremiah 31, it was Yahweh that promised the new covenant. This is the God that is close, that is nearby. Now this term, Yahweh, does appear with some modifiers. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. It could be referring to um, the Lord of earthly armies, but more than likely refers to heavenly armies of angels. Yahweh Yaira, the Lord who will provide. The Lord, your healer. The Lord is my banner. The Lord is peace. And there's others that you can go and find. All of them describe something about God and how God interacts with his people. Now, this name Yahweh is first found in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 3. Moses goes up the mountain to see God, and he stands before God. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
I am is a verb. It just means to exist. Yahweh is the one who is always existing. He is existing and he has never changed. He has no beginning. And if he had no beginning, his being has not been derived from something else. He has always existed in and of himself. And he has done so eternally. And in the very next verse, we find this. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. It is believed that Yahweh is connected to the verb that means to be, to exist. The same verb he used, I am, that Yahweh is a derivative of that verb. When Yahweh says, my name is Yahweh, he says, I am. I am the existing one. I am the one who has always existed. I have always been. And God was known by this name prior to Exodus 3. Genesis 4, uh, 4, 26, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Genesis 14, 22, Abraham said to the king of Solomon, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, I have sworn to Yahweh, possessor of heaven and earth. But when we find these terms there, we have a little bit of a problem because in Exodus 6, 3, here's what God says. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So how is it that he can say, well, in Genesis, they call me by my name. But later now, in Exodus, he says, by my name, they did not know me. Well, the know here is not referring to just knowing the name. It's talking about experiential, relational knowledge of God. When he says they did not know me, they didn't have a full understanding of what his name meant and who he was. So his name reveals a couple things about God. First, it reveals that God never changes. And therefore, the promises that God makes never changes. The God who made all the promises never changes, and his promises never change. And because he never changes, because his promises never change, he will keep all of his covenants. He will keep every single promise that he has made. The second thing that we learn about God from this term Yahweh is that it provides a partial understanding of our first attribute of God. This idea of self-existence, that he has always existed. This is called the aseity of God. This term aseity comes from a Latin, ase. A means from, se means self. So when we speak about the aseity of God, what we're really saying is, we're referring to him as being from himself. That is to say that God exists by himself, in and of himself. He needs nothing and no one else for his life or his existence. He was not derived in any way. Matthew Barrett said, To affirm God's aseity is to say first and foremost that he is life in and of himself. 
no other being has life in and of themselves. We have life because it was given to us. God possesses life on his own. Steve Lawson, the savior of God begins with an understanding of his self-existence. He is life. He possesses life, and he is the giver of life. God created everything in Genesis 1. He created the heavens and the earth. You and I exist because of God, and our existence, our continued life, is because he sustains us and keeps us. We are dependent upon God to live. Our existence depends upon him. But God has always existed. He existed before there was a universe, before there was anything else. No one gave God his life. No one created God. Nothing came before him that would be able to give him life or existence. He has life and existence all by himself, in and of himself. Isaiah 43.10, he said, Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. God has life by himself. He has it naturally. Steve Lawson again, Only God exists without being and maintains himself by his own self-sustaining power. He is the uncaused first cause, the uncreated creator, the unmade maker, the unsustained sustainer. Joel Beakey says, A sadie means that God has no cause, needs none, and is the first cause of all. God exists by himself and is dependent upon nothing. You know, if humans don't eat for a week or two, we cease to exist. If we don't drink water for just a few days, we cease to exist. And if you don't have oxygen for a few moments, you will cease. That's not true of God. He doesn't need any of that for his existence. When scripture identifies people, it identifies people by family lineage. And this is another way we can see this idea of aseity. They're identified by family lineage. King David is identified as David, the son of Jesse. Saul, the Old Testament guy. Saul was the son of Kish. If you want to identify people in the Bible, you relate them to their families. And even today, we do the same thing. My last name tells you what family I'm a part of. And if you know something about my family, you know something about me. Your last name says something about your family. And it helps people identify where you fit in the world and how you relate to the world. But when God identifies himself, he doesn't identify himself as a relationship with another person. He doesn't point to his family lineage and say, this is who I am. That's how we identify ourselves. When God identifies himself, he says, I am who I am. He doesn't have a family lineage that he can point to. He points to his own being. He points to his own essence. He says, I am he that exists. I am the existing one. I have always existed. Only God can exist in and of himself. His existence is not based on family lineage. I exist because I have parents and grandparents and great-grandparents God exists in and of himself. 
Stephen Sarnock, which is a great Puritan writer, by the way, said, I am, that is, I receive from no other what I am in myself. He depends on, upon no other in his essence, knowledge, or purposes, and therefore has no changing power over him. God existed before all of creation when there was nothing. And he existed perfectly with nothing around him. He is completely independent of everything. All of his attributes are natural to him. They come from himself. They were not given. They were not derived. They didn't develop over time. He has always had them in their fullness and perfectly. He has always been what he is. He is what he has always been. He will always be what he is. He will always be what he has always been. He is completely unchanging, just as he was before creation. When we speak about the aseity of God, we're saying that God existed before everything else. He existed from eternity without anyone or anything else, and he was dependent upon nothing. He exists and lives independent of his creation. He needs no one. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need the angels of heaven. He needs no one. He needs nothing. Asadi has been called by some theologians that God is independent. When we say he is self-existence, he doesn't need anything for his existence. He is totally independent of his creation. He is independent of every other force and every other power. He does not need any of them to remain living. Herman Bavinck, this is a little thicker than Steve Lawson. By virtue of this perfection, God is absolutely different from every creature. For every creature is dependent on another. No creature has the source of his existence in itself. No creature possesses anything of itself, but all are absolutely dependent in their origin and hence also in their entire existence and development. You are dependent in every way. I am dependent in every way. I depend on there being air in the room so I can breathe. I depend on there being food so I can eat. I depend on there being water so I can drink. I am totally dependent. And if God does not sustain my life, I will be dead in an instant. This is true of everyone in creation, of every part of creation. But it is not true of God. Bavink continues, But according to this attribute, God has the source of existence in himself. Not in the sense of having caused himself, but in the sense of being, not becoming what he is from eternity to eternity. He is absolute essence, fullness of essence, hence eternally and absolutely independent in his existence. Notice he says, in the sense of being, not becoming. I'm not the same person I was when I was five. I have become someone different. God has never become anything. He has always been what he is. Perfectly and completely the aseity of God says that he, is, that he exists independent from his creation. 
that he exists in and of himself, and that everything he needs, he has naturally in himself. William Perkins says he is wholly complete with himself. He doesn't need anything. He is not dependent. God is completely sufficient. Everything that God wants to accomplish, he has the means, the ability, and the resources in and of himself to do. The consequence of aseity is that God is sufficient. God existed before there was nothing. And when there was nothing, he had everything he needed. Steve Lawson defines sufficiency this way. There are no deficiencies in him. He has no shortfalls. He possesses no scarcity. His creation cannot provide him with anything that he finds missing in himself. He lacks nothing while possessing everything. He has no inadequacies, no incompleteness, no gaps, no voids to be filled. God is perfectly complete in what he is, in his essence. When we say that God is sufficient, it means that God does not need anything. He possesses everything, and he is dependent on nothing. And everything he has is perfect and complete. It doesn't evolve. It doesn't improve over time. It is perfect just the way it is. And therefore, God is sufficient, self-sufficient. And he can accomplish anything he desires. He has the means and the resources to do whatever he desires. So what's an implication of this? If God is sufficient, why does it matter? Okay, great. God's self-existent. He has life in and of himself. He has, his attributes have always existed perfectly. So what? God being self-sufficient means that he can be a giver. All the promises of God are based on his aseity and his sufficiency. They're based on his abundant resources. In Genesis 12, God enters into a covenant with Abraham. And he tells Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. In Genesis 15, he says, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. I'm going to make you a great nation, and through this nation that I'm going to make out of, out of you, I'm going to bless the entire world through this nation. Now, how in the world can God make that promise? How is it that God is able to make those promises to Abraham? Those are significant promises, but they are all based on his aseity. He has the means in and of himself to actually fulfill those promises. I can't promise to give you a billion dollars tomorrow. <laughs> I don't have a billion dollars. I don't have the means to do it. Every promise that God has made, he has the means to carry out and to fulfill, and to fulfill it perfectly. Matthew Baird again, as the God who is sovereign over all things, he can give to Abraham and Israel a great and prosperous land and make them a nation that will bless all nations. 
God is a giver because God is perfectly sufficient in himself. He has the means and he has the resources to give to you. When God makes a promise, he's making it out of the abundance of his own resources. But oftentimes we hear this and we say, well, God is sufficient. He's making promises to me. I'm in covenant with God. That means I can earn some favor with God. I can do something to get myself right with him. This is kind of what the children of Israel thought. Psalm 50, verse 5. Children of Israel are said to be in covenant with God. They're in covenant with him by sacrifice. God instituted covenant with Abraham. He instituted the Mosaic covenant. That covenant had a whole bunch of sacrifices they were supposed to do. And they began thinking, well, you know, if we just offer him some bulls and some rams, he'll be pleased with us. We'll make him happy if we just give some more offerings. If we just sacrifice enough wealth, that'll make God happy. That'll get him to do what we want him to do. Another way of saying, they thought he needed these sacrifices. They thought they were doing God a favor. They were going to bribe him. And God responds this way. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings. And your burnt offerings are continually before me. I'm not mad at you for doing these sacrifices. I'm not going to correct you for doing the sacrifices. It's what I commanded you to do. But the heart attitude behind the sacrifices is you think you're doing me a favor. You think I actually need you to kill the bull. And here's what he says. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. (laughs) I don't need you to give me anything. Everything I need, I already have. You're not going to sacrifice to God, and he's going to somehow be like, oh, wow, thank you so much. I appreciate that. It's his anyway. And I think this next one is a little bit of sarcasm. God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. (laughs) I think of like, you know, a little five-year-old who comes up and starts questioning his parents. Why would you do this? Why would you do that? I'm not going to tell you. It's none of your business. Go play with your toys. If I were hungry, I'm not going to come and tell you I'm hungry. Like you're going to be able to give me something that's going to satisfy my hunger. For the world is mine and all it contains. Another way of saying, if I was hungry, I can eat without your permission. I can go get a cow or a bull and kill it if that was was something I actually needed. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? You think I'm just like you? You think I'm going to be satisfied with the things that make you happy? I don't need any of those things. You see, they had this idea of God that was very much like the pagan world. The pagan world thought that God was dependent upon man. No other, quote-unquote, God was, had a saity had self-existence. No other God was sufficient in and of himself. 
if you look at Isaiah 40, speaking of sarcasm, Isaiah 40, 19 and 20, he says, As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. So if you wanted an idol, if you wanted a god, you'd have to go out and spend some considerable resources to go get gold and silver. And then you take the gold and silver to someone who actually knows how to turn it into an idol, and you pay them to build the idol for you. But if you don't have the money, he who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. So if you don't have the money to go get gold and silver, go cut down a really nice tree and take the wood to a carpenter and have him carve you an idol. But you better select a really good craftsman because your God is so weak that he can't stand up under gravity unless he's made well. You want to get a good idol that doesn't totter and fall over. This is a weak God. Or in Isaiah 44, Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. And he also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. This God is so weak, so dependent upon man, that the man has to go out, plant an orchard, raise the orchard, cut it down, and then carve it into a God. And then that very piece of wood, he'll take parts of that wood and he'll burn it for a fire so he can warm himself and eat off of, and the other part he'll turn it into an idol and he'll bow down and worship it. A worthless God. Same chapter, verse 16. Half of it he burns in the fire over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. That god, he had to be made. Someone had to go and fashion that God. Someone had to go cut down a tree and then shape it and then set it up on a high place. And then they're going to turn around and ask that God to deliver them from trouble? Habakkuk 2. What profit is the idol? What profit is the idol when, it, when its maker has carved it or an image, a teacher, a falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside of it. These gods are worthless, useless, because they are completely dependent upon you completely dependent upon the person making it. And in fact, when they had these idols, they would put them in the center of the city, in the most well-guarded location. Why? Because the idol couldn't even defend itself. 
the God was so weak, it was dependent upon creation to not only create it, but to sustain it and protect it. Turn over to Acts 17. Paul actually addresses this in Acts 17 in Athens. He's walking through Athens, and he's becoming a little upset. It says in verse 16, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And so Paul begins to reason with the Athenians. He begins to argue with them. And this had to include some level of a gospel presentation. Look at verse 18, about the middle of it. The Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. Paul goes into Athens, and he sees all these idols. He begins to reason with them and present them the gospel of Christ. And he points out to them that they were worshiping this unknown God. Verse 23, he says, For I... For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And Paul tells him, look, I'm going to explain to you who this unknown God is. And I'm going to compare this unknown God, the true God, with yours. The Stoics believed, just like we've been talking about, that gods were dependent upon men that idols were dependent upon you and I, and that they were intimately connected with creation. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all, to all people life and breath in all things. Paul looks at the Athenians and says, you've got it completely wrong. The one true God is not dependent upon you. The one true God does not look to you for his wealth, for his life, for his existence. He is not served by human hands. That is to say, he needs nothing from human beings. Yes, you can serve him, you can worship him, but you cannot give him anything he doesn't already have. You cannot change his nature. God is completely sufficient in and of himself. He needs nothing. He is the source of all things. His nature is perfect. It is complete. It cannot be added to or subtracted from. All of his attributes exist in him in their fullness. Like I just said, you can't subtract it from him. And he is dependent on no one. He needs no one else for his existence. Perfectly self-sufficient in and of himself. But there are some implications here. If God is self-sufficient, and he is, if he needs no one, and he needs nothing else, then God must also be self-excellent. What does that mean? Anselm said, his nature must be superior to others in such a way that it is inferior to none. 
in and of himself, he is superior and more excellent than every other being. Uh, theologians have said that this means that God is absolute. God is absolute. Steve Lawson explains it this way. God is the absolute being, for nothing and no one compares to him. Nothing and no one is like him. Nothing and no one makes him who he is. The absolute God, then, is the, absolute, is the God of absolute power, absolute knowledge, absolute wisdom, absolute divinity, absolute glory, absolute excellence, and so on. God is absolutely superior to everything in and of himself. No one exalts him to that level. No one puts him on that level. He is there all by himself. If God is self-sufficient, and he is, he also must be self-divine. That is to say that he did not become God. The Mormons say that, God, that Jesus became God as a result of his good works. Not true. If that was true, he's not actually God. He has always been divine. Divinity is a part of who he is, as part of his nature. He must be self-divine. He didn't become God. He didn't receive his deity as a reward for his obedience. He has always been God. He has always been divine in and of himself. If God is self-sufficient, he must also be self-wise. That is to say, he doesn't take counsel from anyone. He doesn't need anyone's advice. He doesn't need to get a second opinion. Romans 11, verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? There's an implied answer here, and it's an emphatic nobody. Nobody advises God. You're not going to help God think through a problem. He's already got it figured out. If he needed the wisdom of others, he would not be perfectly wise. He would not be independent. If God is self-sufficient, he must be self-virtuous. All of your virtue, all of your morals come from God. And God is the standard of what is good and what is right. When an atheist talks about being moral, by what standard are you moral? It's, it becomes all relative. But God's virtue is not dependent upon other people. If he were dependent upon someone else to define what his virtue is, then he would not be the standard of what is right and what is wrong. If God is self-sufficient, then he also must be self-just. It's the same idea as virtue. God is the standard of what justice is. What is justice? Isaiah 40, verse 14 with whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? God in and of himself is perfectly just. He is the standard of justice and he doesn't need a court to help him figure out if something is just. If God is sufficient, he must be self-knowing. That is to say, he must have knowledge of all things. He's not missing any knowledge of anything. He knows everything and he knows it perfectly. Our knowledge 
is not sufficient. The fact that we have classes, that we have teaching, proves to us our knowledge is not sufficient. Our knowledge is dependent. We depend upon others for knowledge, and ultimately we depend upon God who knows everything, and he knows everything perfectly. If God is self-sufficient, he must be self-excellent. His perfections are natural to him. If there was a being that was more excellent than God, more perfect, more glorious, then God would be dependent upon that being for his glory. If God is sufficient, he must be self-content. To spend all of eternity completely alone with nothing else but himself means he has to be completely satisfied with himself. Jonathan Edwards said, God is infinitely happy in the enjoyment of himself. Before the creation, there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a perfect fellowship and communion. God was perfectly satisfied, perfectly content with that fellowship. He didn't need man to fill a hole in his heart or because he was lonely. He could have remained perfectly satisfied and content in himself for another eternity. Correct. Yes, he must exist. Yeah. If God is self-sufficient, he must be self-attesting. That is, he must be the standard of what is true. He defines what is true. God does not merely possess the truth, know the truth, and speak the truth. He is the truth. He is truth in and of himself, independent of any other. If God wants to know what is true, he's not going to ask anybody's opinion on it. He is the perfect standard of what is true. Steve Lawson, God is perfectly glad within himself. No panic troubles him. No lack of happiness depresses him. He is free from any inward frustration. No anxiety weighs him down. He is deeply joyful and un, with unending peace. If God is self-sufficient, that means he is self-exalting. His greatest desire is to exalt and to glorify himself. His purpose in everything he does is to bring glory to himself. Isaiah 48, for my own sake, for my own sake, he says it twice, I will act. He repeats it twice to make sure we get it. It's emphatic. He's going to act for his own name, for his own sake, for his own glory. God is self-existing. Summary, Sadie, God is self-existing. He exists in and of himself, completely independent of everything. And because he is independent, he doesn't depend on anything or anyone. He possesses everything completely, and all of his attributes are perfect. If that's true, if God truly is sufficient, if God is the self-existing one who has everything and he has it all perfectly in and of himself, that means that God is sufficient to supply any of your earthly needs. He doesn't need any help. He has the abundant resources that he can supply and to meet all of your needs. In Matthew 6, he says, don't worry about tomorrow. 
He is able to supply all wisdom to you. James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach. If you're lacking wisdom, which we all do, you can go to God and God has the means and the resources to supply the wisdom that you need. God is sufficient to answer any and all prayer. How often do we fail to realize that one? That God will and can answer any prayer. God is sufficient to save any sinner. He's sufficient to accomplish all of salvation. It's amazing how often we get into the Christian life and we start thinking that my salvation depends upon me. And that I have to go and do something to make this work. And we don't see God as being sufficient to save us, to finish the task. He's sufficient to preserve his people. To keep you in salvation. He's sufficient to control events in the world. I don't know about you, but if you were watching the news this week, it was kind of a rough week. Do we actually believe that God is sufficient to control those events and to bring about his will and his purpose in them? He's sufficient to fulfill every promise that he's made. We've talked about that. He's sufficient to empower evangelism. A lot of you probably have family and friends that have been, you've been trying to evangelize for a while and you don't seem to be making progress. Don't give up. He's sufficient to overcome every temptation. Every need that you have. Every need that you can possibly conceive of. God has the resources and the means to meet every single one of those needs. And he has those resources in and of himself. He doesn't have to go and ask someone to borrow them. Which means God is able and God is willing to supply those resources. No wonder in Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God is sufficient in and of himself to provide everything you need, and he has promised to provide what you need. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ. The satiety of God, the sufficiency of God, should be a comfort to you. You don't worship a God that's dependent upon you. You don't serve a God that's dependent upon your ability to do something. You serve a God who is completely sufficient in and of himself. And he has everything he needs for you. All right. Questions? Comments? Concerns?
spoke last week and Nathan Deuce mentioned uh, one of the things that he was talking about was from Psalm uh, 46 and then Psalm 43 I read that as well this week and I was just like man you know God is on his throne and he is he he scoffs at what evil people do and our our response is to be to God what I was just taken aback by how God is just awesome that he's still on the throne when you walk into the sanctuary of your God and you look you go wicked don't know this and and it's just the grandeur of God is so amazing and it's hard to wrap our minds around that every single day you know the the eternality of God the holiness of God the perfection is just and we can't really wrap our minds completely around it and it's just awesome yeah. I, I'm reading a book and he's talking about the fear of God and the fear of man and he made a great point and he said we begin to fear man when we stop fearing God mm. when we stop fearing God when we stop being in awe and in reverence of who God is and what God is then we start to fear other people. And that was something I needed to read this last week. <laughs> because there was a part that was like, mm, this doesn't look good. But then I remember, it's not about me. It's not about what I can do or what you can do. It's about an all-sufficient God who controls everything. Okay, we're out of time. So if you have any more questions, feel free to see me afterwards. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Um, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have shown us who you are, that we get to stand in awe of you, that we get to adore you for who you are. And we thank you that you are sufficient, that you are uh, perfectly content in yourself, that you have all the resources that you need to exist. And because you have all that you need and you have everything in and of yourself, that you are able and willing to give to us as well to meet our needs and we ask that you would help us to trust you and help us to look to you and to be in awe of you and that as we study these attributes that our awe and our reverence for you and our worship for you would just grow and we ask that you would help us in our time of worship this morning we ask all this in christ's name amen